Good evening, church. How's everybody doing tonight? Good. Preach. I think I heard a preach out there already, and I receive it in the name. So hold on. Let me just take a sip real quick. I've always wanted to do this. I asked Pastor Fred if I could preach tonight just so that I could bring my mug into the sanctuary. So I see, no joke, a couple weeks ago I saw him sipping out of his mug from right there in my seat, and I was like, man, that just looks good. I just want a mug in my hand. And so tonight I said, no water bottle. I'm bringing my Wolverine mug up here. But anyway, I'm, I'm so honored and excited to um, be speaking tonight. My name is David. If you don't know me, if you're visiting, I'm the student ministries pastor at City Life Church. And, uh, and yeah, I'm excited. I love RC. I love our CNU students, our college, our young professionals, uh, amazing people who are doing amazing things in this world. So I'm ready to dive in. The, the subject of my sermon tonight, if you're taking notes, is it starts with worship. And after our worship set tonight, after Pastor Fred's wrap-up, I was like, man, he just, they just covered everything that's in this sermon. So I guess if you weren't paying attention during worship, this is for you. And uh, the rest of you guys, you're good. You got it all already. But uh, we're going to be reading out of John chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles, we're kind of sitting in this chapter all night. And uh, so you can open it up there. I will have it on the screen behind me. But John chapter 4, starting in verse 3, it says, So he, meaning Jesus, left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the, Samarian, uh, the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and, she, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me? For a drink. Skimming ahead to verse 20, it continues. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God, we pray tonight. Lord, that we would have an encounter with your presence. God, we know that you are spirit. But Lord, we, we know that you encounter us in real life in this earth as you did tonight for so many people during that worship set already. And so I pray, Lord, that you would continue to speak to us through your word. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to speak to us uh, through worship and fellowship. Uh, just have your way, God. And we say yes and amen to all you want to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So many of us are familiar with this story. You've probably heard uh, someone preach on this story before, the, the story of the woman at the well or the Samaritan 
woman. And when we think about this story, we know this story as a story about repentance and confession, right? Jesus is having a conversation with a woman, and all of a sudden he exposes this woman's sin. And and she is repentant and, and turns from her sin immediately after. We know it as a story about the gospel and salvation. Jesus in the story not only exposes the woman's sin, but exposes himself as the Messiah, which is rare, right? Barely happens in the gospels. And so it's a popular story for that reason. We know this story because it's a story about evangelism. The woman, after her conversation with Jesus, brings revival to her whole town, right? But this is also a story about worship and It's also a story about politics. It's a story about what these two things, worship and everyday life, have to do with each other. So on the surface, there's not a lot for us to maybe connect with when reading this story. You know, I've never drawn water from a well ever in my life. Grew up in West Philadelphia. Pretty sure there's no wells there, but if there were, wouldn't want to drink any water from it, right? I've never had an experience like Jesus has with this woman that immediately uh, causes this uh, breakout and revival, although that would be dope, right? But that's never happened to me. And so there's a lot about this story that maybe is unrelatable. But if you look past the surface of this story, there's so much that resonates with us today. I think the story specifically where Jesus stood in relationship to this woman is exactly where we stand with each other today. The terminology has changed, but the vision, the division is still the same. It was Jew and Samaritan then, but now it's black or white or Republican or Democrat, Apple or Android, (laughs) hey Alexa or okay Google, right? We're all like entrenched in our camps whether it's political or technological, right? And we love our echo chambers that just kind of feed back to us whatever it is that we want to hear. And so this division is real. This division is something that we experience today. And it's not just something that is secular. It's something that even uh, uh, comes into our Christian culture and into our churches. You've heard the saying before that Sunday is the most segregated day of the week, which is why we worship on Saturday, thank you very much, right? <laughs> Instead of the, and so, you know, we, we see the, the, the division even in our church culture, right? Instead of uh, uh, Jew and Samaritan, it, was, uh, it is the white church or the black church, the liberal or the conservative church. Then, the way that culture and politics and all that divisiveness played into worship, it was the Jews worshiped in one temple, the Samaritans worshipped in another. And to kind of break it down, to give us a little bit of historical context, the Samaritans. The Samaritans, they were originally Jews who were overcome by the Assyrian Empire, which was a polytheistic, paganistic empire, right? And so these uh, Jewish, originally Jewish people were invaded by the Assyrians, and so they adopted their culture, incorporated even their polytheistic pagan culture into their worship. And so they had idols and other gods that they recognized and worshipped. The Jews, on the other hand, they didn't have idols, but they idolized their worship. They made a god of their religion and their rituals and their practices. 
They had their sacred mountains, Jerusalem and Gerizim, but guess what? So do we, right? We have the sacred political or cultural or, or mountains of personal preference that dictate our relationship with God, whether we realize it or not. So one of the biggest cultural events of America just passed uh, the Super Bowl a couple weeks ago. And uh, I am not at all a sports fan. Uh, and, and so anytime the Super Bowl comes around, I always just get excited mostly about the halftime show and the commercials. And the halftime show this year was definitely a disappointment, except for SpongeBob. Um, but this year I was super hyped. We have a three-year-old daughter, which means that we had an excuse to stay home, which meant that I got to stay in my pajamas, eat buffalo dip still, and get to actually hear the commercials, you know, because uh, usually when you go to parties, all of the Patriots fans are arguing with whomever, right, during the commercials, and everyone's solid during the game. I don't care about the game. I care about the commercials. So I was paying very close attention this year to the commercials, and I don't know if you noticed, but there was definitely some themes running throughout, many themes, but one of the biggest themes, and it's funny, I was like, are these companies talking to each other? Because they're right on the same page. But one of the themes, did you notice, was AI and uh, like technology, robots, did you notice all of that sci-fi kind of stuff? Uh, incorporated in those commercials. If you need a refresher, I have a couple commercials we're going to play here just to, to remind you. Wakey, 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 papa. Wakey, wakey, papa. Bravo, child. It's 3 a.m. Go back to bed. I am hungry. You're not hungry. You don't eat, Robo Child. Yes, I can, Papa. I want a kale salad with chicken and guac. I know guac is extra. Hashtag living my best life. Robo Child, the world isn't ready for you yet. Your time will come. I love you. I love you too, Papa. If I know what love is. Officially the creepiest commercial of Super Bowl history. <laughs> All right, one more. What you don't know about your garage door will kill you. It's official. You can't eat wheat bread. Someone's, Someone's been, been stealing, stealing packages. packages. They call them porch pirates. Porch pirates. All I'm saying is that in five years, robots will be able to do your job, your job, your job. Are you listening? Always, Denise. In a world full of fear. Simply safe. On. Home is the place you should simply feel safe. Robots are everywhere, right? And who can relate? Who's ever been worried that Alexa was listening in on your conversation, right? Um, but I thought that was so funny, right? The commercials are funny. Some of them were creepy, right? But it, it says to us, it, it kind of shows us that rising in our collective consciousness as a society that we're in trouble, right? There's this awareness of a terrifying reality that the things we create to serve us have the potential to become the very things we end up serving. And it's not just technology, right? We have the sci-fi fear of, you know, Siri taking over or whatever, but it's already happening, right? Our media, there's all of this talk about our news feeds and, and, and uh, um, uh, you know, our, your Facebook and your timeline and how that, that is used to manipulate small decisions like, you know, what you're going to purchase at Target versus big decisions like who you're going to vote for, right? We see that. The things that we create, our culture, our technology, it has the power to turn back around and begin to manipulate and to control even us. 
And like Pastor Fred said a couple weeks ago, right, we were made in the image of God, Imago Dei. And so that means that, that we've got uh, the same kind of creative powers as God, right? He's given us free will. He's given us uh, the agency to be able to create. He wants us to create culture that serves us, to create culture that glorifies him, right? But so often, we end up serving culture. We end up glorifying culture above him. And so this isn't new. The technology has changed, but the tendency to worship culture instead of using culture to worship, is as ancient as humanity itself. And so I don't believe that it's an accident that Jesus finds himself in this particular situation with this particular woman. In fact, I know it's not an accident. It says that Jesus had to go through Samaria to get to where he was going, but the reality is is that there was another way. There was a, a more traveled way that was better for and more acceptable for Jews to go because they avoided Samaritans at all costs. But Jesus had to go because he had to find himself in the context of this conversation. The reason is because the context serves a purpose for what he's going to teach us. This is a story about confession, it's a story about salvation, it's a story about evangelism, but it's also a story about worship and how worship is unavoidably connected to our politics, our culture, our everyday life. And so I want to start looking at what Jesus' lessons were, what he was teaching about worship. The very first thing that he says, verse 21, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship on this mountain or that Mountain. The time is coming. What is he talking about? Jesus knew. He was prophetically speaking about the day when, that we sang about tonight when he would die on the cross and, and raise again from the grave, right, for us to have full access to God. It's like what it says in Galatians 3.28, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so the day was coming. He was speaking prophetically about the day that the gospel would be fulfilled and that we would have access to him without worry of the barriers of cultures keeping anybody out. And so that was the first part of Jesus' lesson, that true worship transcends cultural division. But if you read the story too quickly and walk away thinking that that means our worship has no cultural consequence, then you'd be walking away with only half of the definition of worship. True worship transcends cultural division, but it can't transcend culture. If we keep reading in verse 24, it says, for God is spirit. Aren't you happy that we worship a God who, who doesn't belong to any one religion doesn't be, or, or any one race, doesn't belong to any one tribe or political party? We worship a God who doesn't belong to any group of people. And so for our, our God is spirit. He transcends all of our cultural stuff. But it continues. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. See, there's a problem. Our God is spirit, but we are not. Our God is spirit, but we are spirit and we are body. We are flesh. We have a spiritual life, but we also have a physical 
living, breathing, practical life as well. And so if we're going to worship a God up there, if we're going to worship a a spiritual God, we have no choice but to use our flesh to participate in culture, to worship him. So this is what Jesus teaches. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He teaches that in order for worship to be true, it cannot just be spiritual. It must also be truthful. It has to have some sort of impact on your actual, everyday, living, breathing life. You know, one of the reasons why this story is so popular is because it's so dramatic. It has a really great ending, right? Jesus has this conversation with this woman, and then she runs away, and in verse 28, It says, the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. This story is such a great story to preach from. It's such a great story to remember because it has this awesome climactic ending that we all want, right? I want my life to have that kind of impact. And I think that God, he's so intentional about the way that he inserted Jesus' lesson about worship being both spiritual and practical, inserting it in a conversation not only about politics that starts with politics and division, but ends, has a result in actual cultural impact. So true worship, what this shows us, is that it not only transcends cultural divisions, but it translates to practical effectiveness. This woman, after having this conversation with Jesus, after having this spiritual exchange with Jesus, because it was spiritual, right? What Jesus does, it sounds crazy to think that Jesus would call this woman out for all of her stuff, right? And she'd be happy about that. She'd be running around telling everyone, but What she knew and what some of us have experienced before in the presence of God is come on when God speaks prophetically into your life and he reaches down and he looks at your heart of hearts. He knows what's going on, not just the good stuff, but the ugly stuff and speaks to that. That's a spiritual experience that will move you, that will make you realize, man, I'm seen, I'm known, I'm loved by God. And so she has a spiritual experience, but it's also effectual It affects her personally. Her message is this. She says, he told me everything I ever did, which means that now she's going to live differently, right? She's excited to tell people, hey, this is what I used to be. This is what I used to do, but I'm living different now. It was personally effectual, but it was also culturally effectual. It didn't just impact her. It impacted her community. It impacted her her village. The message continued to spread beyond herself. So true worship, it's meant to affect how we live. And true worship, it's meant to affect why we live. So there's this guy named Simon Sinek. You may have heard of him. He has this book called Start With Why. I haven't finished it yet. I'm reading it now. I've been using it with our um, RC leadership team to do some visioning. And, um, And so it's been a really good book. It's millions of copies sold. You might have heard his TED Talk of the same title, um, millions of views. But in this TED Talk and in this book, he comes up with this concept called the golden circle. 
And the golden circle is basically, it's a model of human thought and communication that helps us understand why we do what we do. So maybe you've wondered, why is it that those crazy, weirdo, Apple fanatic people, right, will stand in line overnight every time a new iPhone comes out? Or why is it, (laughs) people are like, "Mm mm-hmm, all the Android people, y'all crazy. (laughs) Why is it that people get logos and symbols tattooed to their body like Harley Davidson, right? Or why is it that Martin Luther King Jr. was so influential that he changed an entire nation? Why is it that JFK inspired us to put a man on the moon even after he died? Why is it? What was it about these organizations and these peoples that, that motivated other people to change? What Sinek points out in his book is that it's because all of these organizations and all of those leaders answered the question why. They started with why. See, most organizations, they start with what? That's what this chart is up here. This is the golden circle. They start with what? And so organizations, they, they talk about their product, you know, buy Pepsi or buy Coke or, you know, buy uh, Macintosh, whatever it is, right? Buy this product. They tell you how expensive well, how cheap it is. They want you to know how cheap it is, right? They tell you what it does and all of that stuff, and then they'll tell you how, which is the process, how maybe they're different from their competition. But most organizations don't tell you why. They just want your money. That's really why they're selling you the product, right? They tell you what they're selling, and they tell you how they're different from everybody else, but they neglect to tell you their purpose. They neglect to tell you why their purpose matches your purpose, but not Apple, not Harley-Davidson, right? Not these uh, companies that we get obsessed with or loyal to. Those companies start with why. Apple's why statement or their purpose statement is this. Everything we do, we believe in challenging the status quo. We believe in thinking differently. Think about any Apple commercial you've ever seen. It isn't like, hey, here's our new computer, and this is the awesome stuff that it does. It's usually about five seconds, right? And it just shows you, like, really cool graphics, right? Uh, It's really clean. It's really minimalistic. It's really artistic and creative. There's loud music, right? What are they doing? They're telling you why. They don't need to tell you what. They don't need to tell you how they're different from everybody else. They're showing you. They're saying why we exist is for people like you who are creative who are outside-of-the-box thinkers, who are fun, right? And it draws all of us in. Jordan Johnson is always the first one in the line, right? (laughs) We're persuaded by why before what, because that's how we're designed. The golden circle mimics the biology, actually, of our brain. So there's a, a slide there that will show you how they compare. The what, that is the product, right, the practical information, it, uh, is associated with the outer portion of our brain called the neocortex. I am not a a neo-neurologist, clearly. Um, And thankfully, neither is Simon Sinek, so it's very simple to understand and see, right? The outer portion of our brain, the neocortex, it's the region of our brain that's super rational. It controls analytical thought and language, right? For all of you math people who are pumped about the, you know, budget meeting, that's you know, your part of the brain. But then there's the inner part of the brain, the limbic brain that controls feelings and trust and loyalty. That part also controls decision-making. It's our feelings that affect what we 
decide. Even the most analytical of us, I know I'm the one, I don't know if you're like this, but if my wife sends me to the grocery store to pick up milk, I'm there for about five hours trying to decide if, I, if it's 1% or 2% or, right, comparing all of the different brands, looking at the nutrition label, looking at the expiration dates, right? I'm doing all of that <clears throat> math and comparing. And so, sure, there's analytical people who make those kinds of thoughts and think that way, but there are just too many decisions we make as human beings, right? For us to always be measuring the pros and cons. And so what Cynic says is that more often than not, it's really our feelings. You've ever said I made a gut feeling or I had a gut instinct or my heart was telling me to do it. It was really that middle portion of your brain. The one that controls decision making, but also the one most connected to your feelings. So what master communicators like King and culture-changing companies like Apple know is that if, is that if they want to inspire action, it requires moving your heart. They know that in order to gain your loyalty, they have to capture your affection. Human behavior, our what, what we do, is ultimately motivated by our why. Our heart trumps our head almost every time. And this is the reason why in Romans chapter 7, verse 16, Paul writes, I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. You want to know why that is? It's because he knows what he wants to do. He knows what is right. But the reality is that there's all of these other things vying for his affection. There's a war out there for your heart. There's a war out there for your affection, and it's more than just technology companies, right? It's more than just Pepsi and Coke. It's stuff like money. It's stuff like sex. It's stuff like materialism that, that is calling out to you to elevate it in the place where God should rest, in the place in your heart, in your affections, that should only belong to God. Listen, you will constantly do what you hate, until you define what you love. And that is why we worship. Worship is where we align our heart's affection to the person of God. When we worship, what we're doing is defining our love for him. And so it's not enough to come to church and to hear about the what, to hear about the behaviors that are right, to hear about what is just, to hear about, you know, what is biblical or what is quote-unquote uh, Christian, unless your heart is aligned, none of that matters, right? What's awesome about this story is that it ends with the big bang, the big crescendo of the, the woman uh, making such an impact on her community, changing her behaviors dramatically, but how it starts at the heart of the conversation is a vulnerable moment with Jesus. The woman who was known to have a wandering heart, chasing after relationship, after relationship, after relationship, after relationship, finally finds herself in a situation where she trades those affections for the affection of Jesus. And it's because of that that she's able to run away from that well and share that story that she tells, not only changing her life, but changing the life of the people around her. 
the what of your life. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I, I, I can relate to Paul when he says, I do what I hate. Can I just tell you the what of your life? It will never line up with the why of the gospel if you keep trying to do it from the outside in. If you keep trying to, to come and say, if I just do, if I just look like, if I just act like, if I just try, it's not going to work. It's not going to happen. You've got to start with worship. You know, in direct contrast to the story of the woman at the well in John 4 is the story of Nicodemus in John 3. And Nicodemus, it holds the most popular verse in the Bible. We all know it, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? We know that verse. But fewer of us know the story that is the context for that verse. Many of us know John 4, the story of the woman at the well. You might not have known where in the Bible it was, but you know it, right? Fewer of us know about Nicodemus. Few of us know that story, and the reality is because it's not a very good story, <laughs> Jesus says a lot of really good stuff. John 3.16 is a really good verse, but John 3, less exciting than John 4. And the stories, they start the same. A stranger approaches Jesus with some questions. In John 4, it's the Samaritan woman, this lowly Samaritan woman. But in John 3, this time, the stranger is a Jewish man named Nicodemus a prestigious politician of the Pharisee party. The Pharisees, they were a highly ritualistic and legalistic uh, uh, religious party that relied upon moral codes and religious rituals. He was one of those people. And the Pharisees were one of those people, right, who, who worshipped culture over God. And so... In John 3, we have a story of this guy named Nicodemus. Rather than being a lowly Samaritan woman, he is a highly exalted, right, prestigious politician. And like John 4, Jesus has a conversation with this stranger. Except this conversation doesn't happen in broad daylight for everyone to see. This conversation happens at night in secret. Both the woman at the well and Nicodemus were aware of something. Both of them were aware of the consequence of this conversation with Jesus. The woman at the well knew that if she was caught, if anybody saw her talking to this young, single, foreign dude at the well by herself in the middle of the day, what kind of implications that would make, especially because of the life she lived. And yet, she has the conversation anyway in broad daylight. And Nicodemus, on the other hand, He comes in the middle of the night, also aware of the cultural consequences. What would happen if the people in his party knew, if they knew what he was talking to Jesus about, if they knew that he had questions, what would they think? Like in John 4, Jesus talks about some of the very same subjects, confession and sin and salvation. But unlike John 4, In John chapter 3, Nicodemus' story, reason why it's not so exciting is because we have no idea how it ends, right? John chapter 4, woman has a conversation with Jesus. It says she runs and her whole village is saved. Nicodemus in John chapter 3, this is how his story ends. 
Verse 22, then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. <laughs> we have no idea what effect the conversation had on Nicodemus' life, or at least not in that moment. And so why doesn't his story result in the same impact as the woman's? They talk about the same stuff. They're talking to the same Jesus. I think it's this. I think it's because unlike the woman who grapples with Jesus about the affections of her heart, Nicodemus only allows Jesus into the periphery of his mind. John 3, 2, how his conversation starts, he says, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Nicodemus comes to Jesus with the desire to be taught, with an interest in the evidence, with the desire to replicate the fruit of Jesus' life. He's going straight to the product. He's going straight to the fruit without any interest in what makes that happen, without the willingness to be vulnerable and bear the affections of his heart because maybe he knows that Jesus might ask him to swap a few things out. And so the conversation, it goes like this. Nicodemus has Jesus at arm's length talking about spiritual things, but, you know, up here in that neocortex region of the brain. Church, if we want to be people who impact the world around us, we can't intellectualize God. We can't, and, and it's important to study. I'm not saying that. Trust me, I love studying. <laughs> it's important to do that stuff. But that is the fruit. That is the product of relationship with him. Whereas the woman in her intensely vulnerable moment with Jesus surrendered the cultural divisions that defined her worship for years, Nicodemus's cultural definitions of worship dictated how far he was willing to allow Jesus to change his heart. If you're here tonight, and you're looking at your personal situation and you're saying, there's some things in my life that I want to change. Can I just encourage you? It starts with worship. If you're looking at your family or your coworkers or your community and you're wanting to see them change, you're wanting to have a hand in that, can I just encourage you? It starts with worship. If you're looking at our nation if you're looking at this country, if you're looking at the world and you want to make an impact there, can I tell you, it's not going to happen by Facebook arguments, right? It's not going to happen by winning com uh, arguments and, and conversations and walking away the bigger man. It's going to start with worship. And so we're going to do just that, worship here. I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come back up. This subject is really close to my heart because it's not just something that I've read in Scripture. It's something that I've experienced in my own life. I've experienced how worship defines relationship with Jesus, how worship directly correlates with the impact, the fruitfulness of, of that relationship. I, um, I grew up in a Christian family, in a Christian household, knew about Jesus went to a private school, read the Bible, probably prayed the prayer of salvation a million times, right? But it wasn't until middle school, maybe sixth or seventh grade, I was going to a youth group called Generation Church at a church called Christian Life Center. 
the church that planted this church, right? Um, I was going there. I, I, I'll never forget the moment. I was in worship. And uh, it was a worship set similar to like what we had tonight. And I remember looking around the room and thinking that everybody was really weird. <laughs> These were my friends that I knew at school, right? But here they were like crazy. They were lifting their hands and jumping and dancing. And I was like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> and I remember you know, going to church as a little kid, and I remember seeing my mom cry, and I would always tell her, I made a vow to myself that I would never cry in church. Like, that's weird. My wife is laughing because I cry all the time in church. I remember, you know, that's weird. And so <clears throat> I was in this moment in middle school, standing in worship, looking around at all these other people, lifting their hands and jumping around, and I'm not the type of person to do stuff just because everybody else is doing it. And so I closed my eyes, and I, I just asked God, I said, God, what's going on? What are all of these people doing? Why are they worshiping like that? And is that really meaningful to you? <laughs> and Jesus' answer to me didn't come in words, but it came in a picture. He gave me a vision of a little boy, maybe two, three years old, at the feet of his father lifting up his hands like everybody else, jumping up and down, saying, Daddy, Daddy, pick me up. And that picture was significant, not because Jesus, just because God was answering my question, why should I worship like this? He was answering a lot of other whys that I had in my heart. I wanted to know why I was growing up in, in a household without a father in it. I wanted to know why I didn't have any good father figures in my life. I wanted to know, I was frustrated. I remember being angry at God, confused about what it meant to, to be a man and frustrated about how, how am I gonna learn? How am I gonna be a father myself? And in this moment, I just asked God the simple question, why are people looking crazy? <laughs> and he showed me this picture and he not only showed me what worship looks like to him, but he showed me who I was to him. He said, David, that little boy is you, and I am your father. And in that moment, it all made sense, right? Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good of those who love God. And I remember just feeling in that moment, like finally I knew who God was. And I remember feeling in that moment, like finally I know who I am. And the revelation was not only who I was and who God was, but what that worship meant to him. It was God receiving my love for him as a father, my affection, but it was also me receiving and affirming my identity as his son. That moment, that picture changed my life forever. It wasn't just a goosebump moment, it could have been. It could have been just a spiritual moment, like the prophetic moment that the woman had at the well with Jesus. But that moment, it shaped how I lived the rest of my life because I learned how to worship on that day. I learned why I lived. I learned the purpose for my life. And so just as you stand tonight, we're gonna go back into worship. And I wanna challenge you, encourage you tonight. Maybe you're here and you've been asking that question, why are these people so weird? Why do they look so crazy? Why are they so excited to be singing these songs? It's because we know, we know who God is. It's because we know whose we are. 
And we know that when we worship, this simple act in here changes everything about how we live out there. So God, I pray tonight for that person, even that one, those ones that raised their hands earlier to say, to confess in a vulnerable moment that they've only given you some of their lives. Lord, I pray for those people. God, I pray that in this moment, they do not neglect their opportunity to worship. God, in this moment, they don't miss the opportunity to begin a life with you. God, that isn't just goosebumps, isn't just emotional, but it changes them personally and affects the culture and the world that they live. God, we receive your presence tonight. God, we give you our worship. We put you on the throne of our hearts. We pray, God, that you would change our affection. Let it be you, God, that we love more than anything else. In Jesus' name, amen.